Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today, my guest is Dr. Tro, officially known by just the one name, Dr. Tro. Now, Dr. Tro is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and obesity medicine who has taken on uh, being a very vocal and visual low-carb physician based on his own amazing personal journey, and now what he's done to transform his entire practice of medicine and help hundreds, if not thousands of people um, transform their lives and their health with low carb. He also is the co-host of the Low Carb MD podcast. Um, and as you'll hear, he he really has his empathy for his patients, his um, desire for helping his patients as his core of what motivates him for everything he, he does. Now, sometimes that makes him controversial because he's very outspoken on social media. He does not back down from a challenge. Um, in fact, he rises up and, and just gets more invigorated to challenges on social media, it seems like. But hopefully what you'll see in this interview is the, the real Tro is so focused on the patient and a really kind and giving and generous human being um, that, I don't know, if you only know him from social media, I think you're going to be surprised about some things in this interview. And if you know him personally, you're probably surprised about how you find him on social media. But regardless, I think the main message here is the message of of how can you help people and what does it take? Not just what what science says about our bodies as thermodynamics and calories, but what it means for us emotionally. Um, the issue of, of food addiction or cravings or um, the the emotional eating. You know, calories don't necessarily address that. So his whole mission of addressing that and addressing health and addressing food all together is, is I think, a message we need to hear more of. So I hope you enjoy this uh, episode with Dr. Tro. Dr. Tro, thanks so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. So happy to be here. Very, very, very much a pleasure. Now, you've been obviously a very uh, visible member of the low-carb community and uh, proponent of weight loss, both with your own personal history and, of course, with your role as a physician as well. So if people aren't familiar with you, give us the, the short version of your personal journey that's led you to where you are today. Wow. Uh, let, me, let me try to dial it down to three minutes. I was <laughs> a 350-pound doctor uh, training in one of the most prestigious systems in the Northeast, in the Yale system. And I had many brilliant colleagues and researchers uh, consistently asking me why I wasn't eating less and moving more. And um, this was, you know, basically uh, a lifetime, you know, I had endured a lifetime of uh, having no understanding of my appetite, what's driving it, and how to manage my appetite and how to approach dieting. And as you know, as a, you know, as a physician uh, and as a board certified cardiologist, you know, we were always told in the medical field that, you know, uh, the approach to dieting should be uh, lowering your calories, lean meats, and uh, eating more vegetables and whole grains. And while that sounds great, it wasn't applicable for my life. So when I finally figured out that, hey, wait a second, you know, let me go back to the literature and see what trials actually work for weight loss, uh, I was very surprised to find that we were essentially lied to. Um, and, that, and that was really disheartening to me. Like if, 
if you have a drug and you want to see how a drug does for pneumonia, let's say, or how a drug does for coronavirus, let's say, what do you do? You go to the double-blind, placebo-controlled studies or the head-to-head studies, and you look to see which one has the greatest effect. And I started there. I said, let me go to the, you know what? Let me go to the literature and see which one has the greatest effect, and let me start there. And I was so surprised to find low-carb having pretty consistently a greater effect than a low-fat, you know, kind of standard approach. That's where my journey started, when I had to question everything I was told. So did you have this sort of aha moment of, oh my God, why did I never hear this before? I went through how many years of medical school, how many years of residency, and I never heard this before. I had to find it for myself. Was that sort of like, I don't know, how did you feel about that? Was it, was it frustration? Was it anger? Or was it just like, wow, this is amazing? Well, so uh, I think really at first it was just I was very pragmatic about it. And I was like, let me just lose weight. I'll just follow the weight loss data. Let me go about this as an evidence-based approach. I'll, you know, this had the greatest effect in six months. This had the great effect at 12 months. We know that diets are hard to adhere to. So if that has the greatest effect at six months, as long as I keep it up, it should have the greatest effect at 12 months. Um, and in fact, there's some evidence even back then that at 12 months, maybe there's even more of an effect. And David Ludwig has really showed that, uh, more recently, but so, yeah, I said, I, it wasn't, it was, there was no emotional, I wasn't angry. I wasn't anything. I was like, I'm just going to do what the data shows at six months. Low carb is better. At 12 months, low carb seems to be better. I'm going to start there. And then, and then I start unpacking more and more over the years. And as I'm looking further and further, why am I hungry? Asking myself the questions. Why am I hungry? Why am I eating? You know, what's going on with my body? What about metabolism? What about fasting? I'm not hungry. Should I be eating? Should I not be eating? I'm working out. Should I be eating? So as I explored the literature, how much protein, how much, you know, maybe not protein, you know, what are the risks of low carb? I'm looking into all of this and I'm coming up now the anger is building over that one year. You know, now the anger is building like, holy crap, you know, we've been, you know, we've been lied to and we've been misled. And that's when I said, I have to get certified in obesity medicine and I can't let anybody else suffer the same way I did. But when you went to get your certification, it was probably still a lot of the eat less, move more, count your calories type of message, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so then, I mean, let's fast forward. I lose 150 pounds and this was like, let's say three or four or five years ago, six years ago, I started thinking about how to do this. And, you know, basically I've been on this journey now, six, five to six years. Um, and yeah, so at, at, after I lost the majority of the weight, I said, I can't, I can't let anybody else be like this. I can't, I have to do something about it. And I go to these conferences to get board certified in obesity medicine, which I eventually did. And, uh, there's a strong push for surgery medications. I mean, the obesity, uh, medicine, uh, main conference, which is obesity week. Uh, some of the issues I saw there right away was it was sponsored by a medication. Um, and when you get there, you know, there are tons of vendors sending, selling, you know, supplements and shakes and, and that's fine. I get it. Some people need shakes. I use shakes from time to time. Very rarely I try to stick to real food, but I understand that there's a role for bars and shakes, but the overwhelming message was eat less, eat lean meat, eat whole grains and avoid saturated fat and avoid excessive protein, which is 
But then out of that same, you know, the same people saying that old message, which we know is wrong, right? They're also saying any diet works, right? Do, do you know, all that matters is compliance, right? right? So they're speaking uh, two separate messages. Well, yeah, yeah, we acknowledge the data supports low carb, you know, but we're going to be biased and say that our main recommendation is go low fat and and eat multiple times a day eat you know so and if you look the the you know the largest voices in that group may come from you know for example the chief scientific officer from the ADA gave a lecture literally saying that he said eat lean meats eat whole grains and then he said you know it doesn't matter what you do low carb or low fat well wait a second you know let's reexamine that okay you're saying you know, eat lean meats and whole grains. And then you're also saying it doesn't matter if you do low carb and low fat, you're contradicting yourself. And if adherence is the message that you believe is the most important thing, you know, dietary adherence is the most important factor, which they say, right? Which the, 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 the all those figureheads say that dietary adherence is the number one most important thing. When we go and we look at how you can measure dietary adherence, the fact that you can use a ketone or a continuous glucose monitor is an amazing adherence tool that no other diet has. So I'm like sitting there at these conferences, like what the hell is going on here? It's like a twilight zone, you know, <laughs> like where, where they're, I think the reality is, is they can't let go. They can't let go of the old mindset and, and, and I think that um, I think that's the problem, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you may have other bad actors um, who may be purposely prejudiced against the low carb community, and and we've seen that. You know, we've seen Yoni Friedhoff, for example, who has a clinic in Canada and is also obesity medicine certified. He's come out criticizing uh, low carb doctors as being too fringe. Uh, and going after a lot of low-carb researchers and uh, the opinions of low-carb doctors. And if you look at his book, you know, he preaches um, eating five to seven small meals, and he preaches eating, eating immediately upon waking up. And, um, and he also, you know, uh, preaches, you know, snacking. And, uh, but then he'll also say, do whatever diet works. So I don't know how to reconcile those two. I think what it is is a bias against low-carb approaches and they're unable to reconcile new data and old data. That's what I believe. I, I you know, I don't know that that's the case. So I don't I know how you feel. You've seen it too. You probably experienced some of the same things. I saw some recent criticism of, of you, which I found was completely unwarranted on social media by another fellow vegan doctor. So I think that, yeah, I mean, you, you probably experienced the same things I experienced, you know, sure. I mean, there's no question in nutritional, um, wars as they're called i guess uh, there's a lot of religion there's a lot of hard belief and there's a lot of financial interest all sort of mixed into one which really kind of muddies the waters and makes it very difficult to to have a meaningful conversation i think especially on social media um which i want to definitely talk to you about your social media presence as well but first let's rewind for a second because we i I'm, your story is still amazing so i still want to highlight it you basically lost half your body weight. You lost, what do you say, like 150 pounds? Is that right? Yeah, about about one third. So I was 350 pounds. Yeah, I lost 150 pounds. 
um, mainly by lowering carbs. Then at, so, I mean, let me, actually, I should take a step back. The first step was restricting, you know, replacing the foods that I could not replace with lower carb versions. Okay. Sorry. Replacing the foods I could not restrict. So maybe understanding, uh, binge eating and food addiction. Okay. And then, uh, lowering the carbs and leveraging the satiety and appetite suppression of ketosis and then adding intermittent fasting. So that was my general, and then adding exercise. So that was the general kind of plan. And this is the general plan we use to advocate for people who come to me with low carb, with a desire to lose weight with low carb dieting. So you had the personal transformation, which led to the professional transformation as you revamped your entire practice to focus on this and help people in this way where they're not getting the message from other people. But as you were going through your own personal journey, did you have any concerns about, well, there's weight loss and there's health and the two are not always equal. So did you have concerns that, yeah, I'm losing weight, but am I harming my health in the process? Because that's sort of what we've been trained to think um, in traditional medicine and contemporary medicine. So did you have that thought process and how did you get yourself out of it if you did? Absolutely. Look, I, I, I tell my patients this, you know, when they come to see me, you know, I don't even trust myself. I verify. Okay. I put a CGM on myself. I have a lipid meter right here where I could do a finger stick and check my own lipids. I can uh, take an ultrasound, put it on my neck and measure the ar- the thickness of my carotid artery. So I I don't believe anybody. I don't believe what Atkins says. I don't believe what Yoni Friedhoff says. I don't believe what you know David Ludwig says, even though I respect him highly, or Kevin Haller. I don't believe all these giants in you know in the uh, obesity and and weight loss field or these voices, right? I don't believe anybody. I don't believe the ADA. I verify all of them. So and we have the tools now. You can measure your ketones. You can measure your continuous glucose. Uh, levels. You can measure your lipids with a finger stick. You can measure your A1C. We can get lab work and you can take an ultrasound, put it on your carotid and look at the thickness and you'll know, um, hey, are all these evil things that they say are going to happen happening? And so I, I think when I saw those values improve and when I understood those values a little bit more, it made me like a little bit more accepting of my journey. And then ultimately I had to decide, well, look, I had failed other approaches. Like I can't do, you know, vegan. I can't do it. I've done it. I've tried, you know, I can't do moderation. So why would I, am I going to be relegated to obesity or accept that I failed these other modalities that are strongly encouraged and, uh, and then, you know, accept weight gain and obesity with an approach that the convention doesn't agree with. I don't think, I think that was an easy decision for me. You know, it's so interesting as a physician, I can't remember how many times I wrote failed um, lifestyle in- interventions or non-compliant with lifestyle interventions. And I'm sure, you know, every physician has experienced that, but until you had that personal experience of you also quote unquote failing lifestyle interventions, did you then have this awakening? So I think it's so important for doctors to hear this story and to take take stock of themselves and how many times they see their patients not complying or or lifestyle interventions not doing what they expect it to do, and 
instead of saying they've tried everything, realize there are other options that we haven't been taught. I think that's such a great example that, that you set. Um, so a, a big focus of what you do is just practical. Is it working for this patient? And you measure and you test like you said. So let me ask you, do you care about the calories in, calories out model or the carbohydrate insulin model? Do you care which one is right and which one is tested? How does that factor into your brain and your practice in your life? There's two ways to think about it. Ideally, we want to know if we can help patients. So I think the carbohydrate insulin model matters because I'd like to know, is it going to get easier for you over time? And that's something that the, you know, that the carbohydrate insulin model may hint at. And I think we see, we see this. We see this in David Ludwig's work. Your metabolism may go up somewhere between 200 and 300 calories per day, right, by lowering your insulin. And, and, and that's a meaningful increase, right? I mean, 200 to 300 calories a day, you know, as you age from 20 to 60, you're going to drop your metabolism 200 to 300, you know, uh, calories per day. So if we can come up with a way to sustain weight loss by altering the macronutrients of a diet, it's meaningful. So I do care about it. Um, I think, look, ultimately, do I think that carbohydrates are the only factor that play into weight loss and weight gain? No, I don't. And I think that uh, there are many short-term and long-term factors that have nothing to do with the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity that need to be dealt with. But I, I, so, but bottom line, you know, over the last 50 years have been the, the practical application of calories as a way to modulate weight loss and weight gain or obesity, and they haven't worked. You know, there's more MyFitnessPals, more nutrition facts, labels on everything, you know, like calorie information literally at the, the, on the menus. And these don't affect behavior and they don't drive desire to eat. You know, I, you know, they don't, they don't, in fact, I would argue, you know, Kevin Hall did a great study. The, one of the biggest proponents of thermodynamics, Kevin Hall did a study where he presented people food that was processed. Okay. And not processed. And he, it was the same exact calories that were presented, the same exact macro, macronutrients, the same exact kind of salt and fiber. And what happened? The processed food group ate more calories. So certain calories lead you to eat more calories. And we know David Ludwig showed, so I'm going to combine these two giants. David Ludwig showed that certain calories increase your calories out, right? They increase your energy expenditure, your resting metabolic rate. So if the calories affect both the calories in and the calories out, it's going to be really difficult to quantify in a meaningful way, right? So, so I think that, you know, meaning like, let's make it super simple. If you eat 300 calories of Oreos, when do you get hungry again? And what happens to your next meal? You're probably eating one hour later and it's something even worse, right? If you eat 300 calories of eggs, which is, I don't know, four eggs, right? What's going to happen? You're going to be full for a couple hours, right? So the type of calories affect both the in and the out, right? So I think that we have to acknowledge, one, the calories model of obesity has failed. It's failed. We... Everybody knows about calories. They have an understanding of calories. And even clinicians, you and me, when we, when we are put in a metabolic ward and we see how accurately we estimate our calories, we're off by 20%. That's nutritionists and dietitians, 15, 20%. The lay people, the average lay person, it's 30 to 50%. Yeah. 
right? So either you forgot what you ate or the portions you ate, right? So the calorie information is everywhere, okay? So Even the best of is, us can't measure it. This is so, an important differentiation, though. Yeah. So it's, it's not that restricting calories, eating low-fat, um, eating sort of the quote-unquote recommended diet, it's not that that can't work. It's not that if someone was compliant, like the message of compliance, adherence is key. So it's not that that diet can't work if you complied with it. It's that is that much harder to comply with over the long run because of all these factors. Would you say that's a true statement? Uh, yes. I believe in the conservation of energy, okay? I just believe that it's not useful for weight loss. That's it. That's the, that's the sentence that everybody needs to hear. Okay. Yes, conservation of energy exists. It's not helpful, right? It's not helpful for the average person. If you're a neurotic bodybuilder, for example, it may be helpful for you, right? It may be helpful for you. Okay. But for the overwhelming people who just, who are trying to navigate basic weight loss, right? It's not largely helpful. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, we believe in calories, you know, um, the majority of people who follow low carb diets believe in calories. We just know that appetite suppression leads to decreased caloric intake, full stop, right? right. So there's something that leads to calories. I'd rather focus on that something. And it, it, the psychological aspect is so important. I mean, you can measure calories in, calories out. You can measure thermodynamics. You can measure what happens in the body, but what happens in the brain is even more important. And that's something that I really appreciate that you talk so much about and you're such a, a vocal advocate for um, addressing hunger, addressing um, binge eating, addressing food addiction, which is a bit of a, a loaded word about addiction or not. But whether it meets the criteria for addiction, it's clear that we are human beings with cravings. We are human beings that have trouble regulating food intake. And that's something you address uh, quite a bit. So what do you find... Like, was that one of your revelations as well that, oh my God, no one, no one's talking about this. We're talking so much about food, but we're not talking about behavior. And so how did you make that transition to sort of focus more on behavior as well? Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I can tell you it was, it was staring me in the face, right? And I didn't want to address it ever in my own life. I can tell you for sure patients come to me. I mean, look, ask, go down the street and say, you know, do you have a problem with sugar? right? And nine out of 10 people will probably tell you yes. Now, is sugar addiction real from a scientific perspective? Let's let the scientists figure that out. From a clinical perspective, patients come to me and say they're addicted to sugar. They probably mean they're addicted to hyperpalatable food. Okay. They probably mean there's a metabolic reason that's making them hungry, metabolic, psychologic, neurologic reason that's making them hungry. Right. But at the, the way that they communicate is I'm addicted to sugar. I'm addicted to food. Okay, so clinically it exists. Scientifically, I'll let them figure that out. Okay, at least, at the least, it should be, you know, um, this is what's reported to us by patients. So, so yeah, absolutely. But how did I discover it? Let me tell you, I was a 350 pound doctor, and one day, you know, from the life of me, for my entire life, it was finish your food, and I had three kids, and I was or two kids at the time, and I was finishing their plates because. Um, because I don't want to waste it. And one day I said to myself, wait a second, I'm a 350 pound doctor. I want to lose weight. Why am I logicking myself? What is, what is hijacked my logic that I'm convincing myself to eat more because I don't want to waste it. Right. 
And then, you know, here's another quick little tidbit that let me off to it. And I'll, and I'll quickly segue off. You know, my wife used to always, she was very supportive of me, always very supportive. She never had an appetite issue, never quite understood my appetite issues until later on, until more recently. But she would say to me, you know, what happened to the ice cream? You know, what happened to the cereal? Are you sure you want to eat that? And my initial reaction, if if you have a lifetime of obesity and somebody tells you to eat less, your gut instinct isn't like, oh, thank you for helping me, right? <laughs> you know, so, well, really I should have been, right? I should have, so logically speaking, right? I'm a 350 pound doctor, really 90th percentile on my board exam, you know, trained in the Yale system. I'm, I, I'm you know, very, you know, passionate about evidence. I should say, thank you for encouraging me. Rosette, thank you so much, you know? I should put the ice cream down, but I didn't say that. I was agitated by that response. And so now here I am asking myself, wait a second, why am I getting agitated? Wait a second, why am I logicking myself into eating more? Why am I getting agitated in response to somebody who's trying to support me? And when I connected the dots that something is in my life that's making changing my emotions and changing my logic to to the to the you know point of self detriment, that's when you really have to consider food addiction. Because I'm a logical guy, I'm a physician, right? right. I'm a pra very pragmatic. I'm fairly, you know, <laughs> I'd like to think I'm emotionally stable, right? But so why am I getting agitated? Why why what what's going on? Why am I logicing myself to eat my kids' leftovers when I want to eat less? So that, that was took the first... introspection. So you had to look in at yourself. Yeah. And that's not always comfortable for people. And actually, right now is a perfect example. In the time of you know, COVID-19 and lockdowns, people spending time at home, more people stressed and worried about things. There's a lot more emotional eating going on, whether you're already keto, whether you're already intermittent fasting, whether you're vegan, everybody's experiencing the stress and the emotional eating. So are you seeing this with your patients and sort of a, a spike in the need to address the emotional components and the psychological components of food? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that concept of food addiction also it has to be paired with the idea that, look, our brains are amazing at getting food. We're designed to eat right? Unless the wires are really crossed, like in certain eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia, right? The desire is to eat and the drive will be to eat, whether that's, you know, carbs, carbs and fat or fat alone, your brain's going to go for it or flavor or taste or sweetness. There's a lot of drives or stress. I mean, we, so, but to answer your question, stress is actually one of the biggest predictors of weight regain in our practice. We have, you know, a panel of hundreds of patients on remote scales and when we see those weights go up, it's always stress, okay? And when COVID hit, you know, Brett, I got to be honest with you, I broke down because I was getting calls and I was in tears in my office here because we got call after call for anxiolytics. And then we got calls after calls for binge drinking and then binge eating. And then we're watching the scales go up, you know, remotely. We're watching the CGMs get more erratic and uh, people are suffering. And I, you know, all of a sudden we're booking, you know, we're booked out for weeks in follow-ups with people that we have identified as high risk for weight gain. And, um, and I, I said, enough is enough. We're going to have these free town halls. And then we started doing these free Zoom weekly meetings and we have hundreds of people on there and they're all experiencing the same thing. Um, you know, so it's, 
it's absolutely a factor. You're, I mean, this is so key. More than calories, it's how do you manage your appetite when you're stressed? That's probably one of the most important um, factors you can focus on. And can you eat foods that make you less hungry and make fill you up when you're stressed out? That's an important defense to obesity. I, I Like you hit the nail on the head. Which leads to another topic about cheat meals. And, you know, cheat, I hate the term cheat meals, but it's so commonly used that people understand it. So, excuse me. So is there a role for a cheat meal if it's going to sort of help keep you on target? And how do you know if that's the case or if it's going to lead to a landslide of going off plan and, and really having a hard time digging yourself out of the hole? Well, I, that's a that's a that's a tough question. Ultimately, we know that ketones. You know, we we suspect that ketones likely have an appetite suppressive effect, meaning they act centrally. We know they prevent seizures. We know they may modulate mood and depression. So we know that ketones have a central role. And if you, like me, believe that ketones may also have an appetite suppressive effect centrally, then a cheap meal, right, or consecutive cheap meals will take away from that appetite suppressive. Bank, bank account of ketones, right? So they may actually derail you or, you know, but ultimately I think what we find is this. Um, we try to limit quote unquote cheating as much as we can. And we, but we're very forgiving about it too. We liken it to uh, getting a flat tire, okay? If you're driving a car and you get a flat tire, that's fine. You take out the spare, use the spare tire. Right. So if you're like really stressed out and you want something chocolatey and I mean, look, don't drive around. Don't go eat Oreos. If you can make yourself a lower glycemic, lower carb cookie. Right. Maybe that may be better for you. Right. That's like using a spare tire. Right. I wouldn't go around and, you know, pick up junk food and just eat it. That's like driving around with your axe, you know, kind of breaking the rims and breaking your axle. So we say, but how long should you be using these alternative hyperpalatable foods, whether they're low carb or, or, you know, slightly less carb or, or a little bit healthier for as long as you need until you get things fixed. Right. So if you drive around with a spare tire for weeks on end, I'm going to have to ask you and tell you, Hey, maybe there's something wrong here. Right. Maybe there's something wrong here. So yeah, cheat meals, you know, quote unquote cheat meals. I think, can you make those cheats into a appetite suppressive meal? right? Can you leverage the power of ketones and keeping the, your carbs low? So if you can, that's great. If you can't, just make the, you know, and even if you use them or you go to the real junk food, you know, make the damage as, as, as narrow as possible, right? Use that spare tire for as little time as you need until you get the tire fixed. I like that so analogy. So go back to real food as, as quickly as you can. Yeah, it's a good you analogy. Know? Now, in the same line, you mentioned earlier that you you do sometimes use bars and shakes. So what do you see as their role, either for you or for you know a number of your patients? Um, do you advise them to strictly avoid them? Do you use it as a crutch? How do you how do you see their role? Yeah, absolutely there's a role. And I ask patients, so we so whenever we see somebody, we evaluate a number of things, but uh, one of the most key points we evaluate are the problem foods, the problem times, and the problem situations and people. Okay. So if somebody can't go to work, like I was going to work literally eating my colleague's chocolate, right. For several years, right. This is a doctor going to the hospitalist lounge eating, you know, I, I wondered how the hell do you keep chocolate in your 
like covered for months. You know, that, that was the way I thought. So absolutely, when I used chocolate protein bars and shakes, they were quite helpful for me to lower my carbs and to not eat the chocolate that I had a problem restricting, right? So they can be helpful if they, if they prevent, you know, if they're a lesser evil. So, but then when you get to the point where you're like, why am I eating two protein bars a day and two chocolate protein shakes a day? You know, that's the point where then you have to take the next step. Do I really need these things? Right? So you have to constantly evaluate. One of the other key points we focus in on are, so along with focusing on what foods do you need to replace, right? What are those problem foods you need to replace initially? We also focus in on asking yourself, why am I eating? And what's the best I could do about it? So if you were eating a shake because you would otherwise be eating ice cream, that's a huge win, right? right? If you are several months later eating shakes and you're asking yourself, why am I eating the shake, right? And you could do better, then do better. So I don't know if that helps. It does. And again, it comes down to introspection and being honest with yourself, which to be honest, a lot of people are not so good at. They definitely need help tapping into that because it's not something they've thought about before. So it sounds like, I mean, they need, a lot of people need a doctor, a nutritionist, a coach, someone to help them have that introspection a lot of the time. So you know what? Let me tell you, I've dealt with this. There's such a, an emotional baggage. Like I, the, my, my obese mind is still here. When I walk in somewhere that's narrow, I turn my body because I still think my butt is going to, you know, like catch the, like I, like I still think that I'm larger than I am. My frame is larger. When I go to the gym and I'm on the treadmill and somebody's making a fat joke, you know, I still think like, Oh, are they talking about me? You know, when, <laughs> you know, um, there's so many other examples I can give of this, but that obesity mindset is, uh, is a challenge to overcome Okay. And, and there's emotional issues with it. Sometimes people come to me, they're like, you know, Tro, I ate, you know, two protein shakes this week. I did terrible. And I'm like, well, why'd you eat the shakes? Well, I was going to eat the ice cream. And then I was like, I remembered that you said that, you know, I could put two scoops of protein, some ice, some nuts, mix it up. And it tastes like a, you know, I was like, well, okay. And they're beating themselves up about it. Right. And I'm thinking, wait a second, this is like a win. Like you, Notice you had cravings. You did something to, to advocate for yourself in that moment against those cravings, and it worked out for you, right? But a lot of times patients don't see that, and so you're absolutely right. You, sometimes you need that you know, second uh, set of eyes just to look and say, yeah, you're doing great. Keep going. Yeah. And then sometimes the scale doesn't move, right? And you're like, well, I did everything right, you know? And you may get discouraged. Well, there's somebody telling you you're doing everything right. Just don't rock the boat. Keep going. Right. So, so I think the co that coach is needed. Yeah. Right. That, sometimes you have to separate the behavioral goals from the, the metrics and the health goals because you can be doing everything right and not seeing the results, but still need that encouragement that sometimes, sometimes it's the behavior goal that matters more and, and setting realistic goals. And I mean, there really is sort of an art to that. It's not really the, the science that you learn. That's not the calories in calories out. That's not the the science of nutrition. That's the science of people and the, the art of dealing with people, which, which is definitely something that sounds like you and your practice really focus on and have down. So I appreciate that. But now I want to transition for a second because I've met you a number of times in person and you are a very kind and, and gentle and person easy to speak to. 
And then there's Tro on Twitter, which is very different. So first, let me ask you, if someone met you in person, what would they be most surprised about if they saw you on Twitter? And then vice versa, if they knew you on Twitter, what would they mo be most surprised about you if they saw you in person? Um, well, let me tell you, a lot of my patients come from social media. Actually, they find me on social media and they come to the practice here and I ask them, you know, how did you find me? And they say, oh, I follow you on social media. The first thing I do is I apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry you have to endure that. Um, yeah, look, we, I, I, I cannot say like we put the patient first in this, in these four walls. Okay. The patient is first. Okay. We let patients text, email, and we advocate reaching out anytime. If we can respond, we'll respond. If it's going to be the next morning, we'll respond the next morning. Uh, send us your meals, ask us your questions. We'll get back to you. We have two health coaches, Amy and Brian, both who've lost an incredible amount of weight that, you know, are incredibly supportive. We co-manage, you know, diabetes, hypertension, uh, weight loss, alcohol, uh, use smoking. I mean, we, we are, we are here, like we get satisfaction when we help people. So I, and I get satisfaction from that connection and helping people. So, um, that's the, you know, we literally have, I have lupini beans, you know, pro, uh, uh, chocolate and vanilla protein shakes, protein cookies and protein chips. Uh, I have all sorts of electrolyte drops. We sell it right here. We don't want to make it easy for people to just implement lifestyle change, right? In the front office, we got what, like, you don't need to buy it. All of it is crap. Eat real food if you can. But we will, like, you have a problem with cookies, we're sending you a cookie recipe. You have a problem with bagels, we're sending you a bagel recipe. So the, the real tro is somebody who wants you to lose a ton of weight. Because selfishly, when we're looking at your remote scales every day, we want to see it go down. And we want to know that we've done a great job and we've exceeded, you know, people's expectations. So we try to do our best. I mean, that's it. Now, the, so when you come in here and you confess, you know, how you binge eat pizza or binge eat chocolate, or you can't go a day without eating ice cream, you know, and you share that weakness. Well, we're sharing your weakness with you. Well, we're sharing our weakness. We're, we're in this together. So that level of empathy is there for patients. My level of empathy for doctors and scientists who say food addiction isn't real, low carb is all about calories, I have no empathy for them, okay? I have, I have not, I don't have empathy for them. I do feel, I, I, I feel sad for them that they don't know better, right? And, but that message is quite harmful to my patients, right? The message that calories are all that matters is quite harmful to my patients. So I view them as harming my patients. So what would you do if you saw somebody doing something wrong that was harmful? You'd go and you'd correct them. And when, then when they called you a, you know, zealot, you'd say, no, you're, I'm not a zealot. You're a X, Y, and Z. And this is why you're wrong. And if they still call you a zealot, you'd say, you're just in it for like, you'd, you'd, you'd fight back. Right? right. Because the message is harmful. And, the, and if the message is harmful, I think we need to be very accurate. Right. And the way that, the convention has tried to pretend that their message isn't harmful is to say any diet that works is a good diet, right? But out of the same mouth, they're saying eat lean meat and more whole grains. So they are anti-low carb and the bias against low carb is very evident. We know this in the, you know, the, 
the Nutrition Coalition knows it. You know, the Low Carb Action Network knows it. You know it. I know it. They're bi- there is a strong bias against low-carb modalities. So I, I, um, I have a very strong passion in advocating in a public forum for these approaches, particularly intermittent fasting and low-carb. Uh, because there's a strong bias against them. So, yeah, you're going to get the, the social media tro if you give the a terrible message. You know? Um, that makes I don't know. Sense. Maybe maybe that makes me a zealot. I don't know. I'm, I'm Maybe the right word's an evangelist. You know? I recognize their point. Calories matter. You know? But I'm sorry. If you, if you address food addiction, you will lead to addressing calories. If you address calories, you will not address food addiction. That's a right? great way to sum it up right there. I think that's a great summary, how you said that. So so what is a keto fanatic? What is a keto crazy? What is a keto zealot? I think you may actually be a keto zealot. So I, I don't know whether what is the long-term outcome of doing what I say versus what Brett says versus what you know Lane Norton says versus what Yoni Friedhoff says versus what the ADA used to say. I don't know the five-year outcome of that. We don't have that data. We don't have hard outcomes data. We don't have a lot of it. Maybe there's five, you know, outcomes trials in the, in the nutrition world, most of which are old, all of which have controversy. So we don't know what happens in the long run. I just, you know, I, so I, so one, you have to, if you're not a keto zealot, in my opinion, if you acknowledge the limitations of your, of your approach, and I think acknowledging the side effects, right? The potential side effects, if you're on an SGL2 inhibitor, you may get ketoacidosis. If you're pregnant, you know, and lactating, you may get ketoacidosis. You may be at risk of kidney stones because in the beginning of a low-carb approach, there's an increase in urinary calcium, right? So if you're not hydrating and you're not adding salt to your diet, you may be at risk of these potential issues. Um, if you have severe um, uh, gl- glomerular nephropathy, there may be an issue with pro, you know, excessive protein and otherwise there isn't. But, you know, if you're not aware of these very specific, if you have a history of pancreatitis and your triglycerides are very high, you know, should you, how should you proceed with a low carb diet? You know, I think that's, these are all critical issues. And if you're, if you're not aware of them, then you're a keto zealot, Right. I think advocating for low-carb diets when everybody else is kind of biased against them, that's not low-carb zealotry in my opinion. Yeah, I like, I like the comment about being aware of the limitations of our knowledge because, I mean, let's, let's face it, it's, it's easy to get caught up in your own biases. I mean, that's so easy, especially when you've had an amazing personal history, especially when you've transformed the lives of hundreds of people in your practice um, you can start to believe that this is uh, a miracle cure that's good for everybody and, and sort of put your blinders on. And that's hard not to do. I mean, when I see a study that's anti-saturated fat, that's, uh, that's pro-high carb, my brain immediately goes into, okay, what's wrong with this study, right? And that's not always the healthiest approach. You sort of have to take a step back and say, okay, I need to make sure I'm evaluating this objectively outside of my own bias which is hard for humans, for, for you, for a doctor, for me, for anybody. So do you find yourself wrestling with that as well, just to have to sort of have your own introspection and say, am I crossing that line of being a keto zealot, as others say? I, don't, I try not to drink my own Kool-Aid. And look, I have to be honest, we, we, our program is designed like a clinical trial, okay? Because there is no long-term evidence. We check labs at zero, two, and, and four months. 
And then at, for very consistently for how long you are a patient, we look at your CIMT, we look at your calcium score. There are no long-term studies. What would you want to know? Don't you want to know that you're getting healthier or not healthier, right? And you're absolutely right. You have to reevaluate. People, the, my second most common consult after, you know, I want to lose weight, please help me with low-carb diets, is I've been doing keto and I'm not losing weight. So then you have to ask yourself, all right, what are the limitations of keto, right? What are the limitations of low-carb, right? right? And usually there are very recurring themes there, whether it's, you know, alcohol use, uh, dairy fats, nuts, snacking. You know, there's a lot of common themes there, but... So, yeah, I don't believe in, I'm, I believe in low-fat diets. They have to be low in, you know, seed oils and trans fats, right? I believe in, in um, you know, I believe, I believe in, you know, great avocado oil and, and high-quality olive oil and, you know, fats that you get with foods that are satiating, like meat, fish, chicken, eggs, and Greek yogurt, right? I believe in, you know, a diet of, you know, uh, of, of, so I'm both high fat and low fat, you know, I'm both high carb and low carb. I believe in a lot of, you know, unrestricted fiber if you do well with it. So go to town on green leafy vegetables and low carb fruit, you know, but I'm not a proponent of, you know, needless sugar. Well, how about, right? the, how about the concept that to lose weight on keto, all you have to do is eat more fat and that's the key. Not true. I see it all the time. We see it all the time. Okay. I think that we see uh, very frequently people come to us, I've been doing keto, I stopped losing weight, I still have weight to lose. And, it, and we just, we have a very pragmatic approach. Have you lowered your carbs to under 30? Have you decreased your meal frequency and evaluated your snacking, right? And what is your role of added fat? You know, and we tackle those month through month, okay, over time, because it's not easy. You can't go through this in, you know, 20 seconds. Right. Um, it's it's I wish I could do it. I mean, I could say it in 20 seconds, but it's like a, it's a complete curriculum. Right. So so you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that um, it's not, you know, keto. It's a keto is a framework to get you to eat in a way that makes you not hungry. Not eating is, the, you know, that's the I truly believe that the intermittent fasting and the limitations of snacking and the naturally eating less calories because you're more full. That's the weight loss. Right. So I, right. I view, I tell my patients, low carbon keto eating is an appetite suppressive, uh, is a way to eat that suppresses your appetite. Right. Then getting full more frequently, eating less frequently and snacking less is the weight loss tool. Yeah. Right. So I don't know if that, that's, so I think that that's a little distinction there, you know. Um, How often do you find people that where you say, you know what, I don't think keto is right for you. And I think maybe you do need to eat more carbs and come out of ketosis and I mean, is that something that you encounter in your practice that you recommend? Yeah. Well, let me tell you how, when I think it is appropriate and the NLA doesn't. The NLA says don't use uh, ketosis, uh, ketogenic diets and low-carb diets and severe hypertriglyceridemia. So NLA, are, the National Lipid we, Association. We are now uh, publishing, we are nearing submission on a, a case series of patients that have dropped their triglycerides by 1,000. Okay? By 1,000 with low carbon and eating Wendy's until they're completely full. Just going to Wendy's and getting hamburger patties and, and cheese, right? So, I mean, that's not the main intervention. I'm over typifying it, but, you know, um, you know that case series is pending of a thousand point drop in triglycerides, case series, sorry. Okay, and we have another case where maybe we think that uh, 
we had a case a very, that will also be published that we we are working on, okay, that of a patient who had an LDL of 770 and an increase in their calcium score and an increase in their uh, carotid intima media thickness, okay, and they had um, xanthomas uh, develop, okay, and you'd be surprised by the intervention. It was this person, if you saw them, their phenotype was like you and me, Brett, like somebody very slim, six pack or, a, you know, like very slim, exercising every day. Okay. And what did we do? We just periodized carbohydrate to, to exercise, not much. And we uh, made a slight transition to omega-3 fats and protein. And we literally watched their LDL come down from above 700 or actually incalculable, really, I should say, but probably above 700 to under 200, okay? Did the xanthomas um, go away? Uh, well, not yet, not yet. <laughs> I imagine I, And I time. don't think they will. I don't think yeah. they will. Yeah. So, and why do we do that? We had direct evidence that this isn't working for you. We didn't call, he came to us with that, right? right. He came to us with, with uh, LDL 700, right? And we, and he, I think he was looking for guidance on what we should do. And we said, there's no evidence that we see that you can that you should continue a ketogenic diet, right? I mean, right. we have only evidence against that. Right. So, so, um, so that goes and, back and to that the will be published tree. too. What's that, that? That'd be amazing study or amazing case to publish. But that goes back to the the keto zealot of of realizing the limitations and realizing when okay, this is not right for you. And if you can admit that. That's that's a vote against the zealotry, which I think is important to have those the open eyes. Um, so that's well, why look, I asked the question. We, we, we deal with it like a realize. we deal with it like a with like a clinical trial. I don't know what diet. I wish I knew. I wish I knew I could say eat this for the rest of your life so you could live to 150. Yeah. So I have to just do my best and admit that I don't know. Right. And we do our best. We monitor you. We try to keep your weight low. We try to keep your you know uh, uh, these endpoints that we knew are. are pretty good surrogates, we try to make sure they're, they're not going haywire. And when they do go haywire, we got to reevaluate. Right. I mean, this is the point of having a doctor help you is so I can give you intellectual support. Right. So we have right. to give intellectual support. You know, uh, I don't know. You know, I feel strongly about that. Yeah. So now in addition to your personal journey and your medical career, um, you also are now a podcast host along with Brian Lenskis, who's also been on, on this podcast. Um, with the Low Carb MD podcast. You guys are a great team. I really enjoy your podcast. What are some of the either sort of your most interesting, your most surprising, uh, your most educational memories from the podcast that you say, wow, this really sticks with me. This really changed something. This really impacted me. Yeah. I mean, look, I have to be honest with you. You, you probably see this uh, because, you know, you're the the you know, the chief medical officer of Diet Doctor and you're a podcast host. So, so you get to appreciate also that you collect so many brilliant minds. And each time you go on a podcast, you get a brilliant piece of information or a nugget or a different way of understanding something. So the personal educational value to myself has been amazing, right? I mean, you have Rob Sivis talking about food addiction, you know, Evelyn Boudoir-Ra talking about, Boudoir-Roy talking about food addiction and, uh, and the pragmatic struggles of being a low-carb advocate, you know, in a world that is biased against them. When you hear of stories of what Tim Noakes went through, and then you hear about the awakening of, of Dr. Unwin, 
you know, and how he yes. reevaluated his practice and now is reinvigorated and helping countless people. I mean, these stories, uh, and then the, and then the patients and the people. You know, uh, we had you know seizure salad on uh, who was going to have a lobotomy, right? And found low carb approaches. We had you know Paolo who had done Optifast again and again and failed and failed and was just miserable and and found a way out through low carb approaches. So, and each one of these personal stories from people who have found low carb uh, uh, approaches that have helped them, you learn something from it—a different approach, a different fact. And these brilliant minds that come on, Nina Teicholz talking about the system against low carb. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Kate Shanahan talking about, um, you know. Uh, kind of uh, her approach to nutrition, all of these, you know, and how can I forget Jason Fung? It's just nobody better who cuts the BS like Jason Fung and mm -hmm. just makes it simple, you know? Um, you know, <laughs> like I love yeah. it. He says, you know, is food addiction real? I don't know. Take your kids down the aisle, put them down the candy aisle and see what happens. Yeah. You know, like just cuts through the BS, Right. you know, like I'll let the scientists figure out how to make it a DSM diagnosis. But I'll listen to Jason Fung because he's just going to make it easy and understandable, right. right? So, yeah, it's it's um these it's been such an honor. And Brian, you know, one thing I want to say about Brian is I have not met somebody with such a kinder heart, such a uh, uh, a nice person, um, selfless, and a great mentor, role model to me, uh, Brian. And I'm so happy that I'm able to help him get his practice up and running. Uh, now in in San Diego, uh, doing direct primary care, um, he's he's an incredible, kind, and caring person. Um, uh, all the qualities that I lack, the finesse that I lack, you know. So it's it's been such an honor. You know, the Low Carb MD podcast is like it's been immensely valuable to me and immensely rewarding because I can't reach everybody. The people come to me and say, yeah. "Doc, I can't afford you." I was like, "Well, look, you can't afford me, but we have these free town hall meetings." We have this podcast. It's like an educational series. You know, this is something you could start with and until we figure out how to get you in. So uh, I feel like it, it's also a service that I, that I, that I do. Um, so, I you know, I, it's been valuable for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great description. And, and your description of Brian, of course, is, is spot on. He's such a, a unique individual and such a wonderful person. But I also love how you mentioned um, Dr. David Unwin because – you know, he, he's got such an amazing story that he was sort of burnt out, ready to quit his practice and because he wasn't seeing the benefits he, he wanted to see and then turn that around with low carb that would just revitalize his entire practice as a physician. And I see that in Brian. I see that in you. I see that in so many doctors that not only learning personally and helping personally, but your whole professional career is revitalized and more fun and more enjoyable because you're helping people, which is why we got into this business in the first place. Whether it's calories in, calories out, carbohydrate, insulin, wars on Twitter, it all comes down to how are you helping the patient in front of you and how are you helping the hundreds of patients in your practice. And I think one thing that came out in this interview is that that is you to your core and that is your belief and where you come from in everything you do. And I really appreciate that. And I hope people well, let get me tell that you, message. Let me tell you something because people you know, question my motives and my conflicts all the time. I took out a massive bank loan to start this practice. Okay, a massive bank loan. I have not taken a paycheck from this practice. I have not taken one paycheck from this practice in the two years it's been open. Not one. Okay? Not one paycheck yet. All right? 
my wife, okay, who people say I have a conflict of interest because she has a, um, you know, a keto baking mix uh, company, which I do. I have, I disclose that conflict. I've disclosed it to diet doctor with my publications. I disclose this conflict. My wife has spent money to make low-carb uh, replacements available to people. So my family, okay, my family has spent money to advocate for low-carb approaches. And we have not seen one profit, okay? We have not seen one paycheck, and it's been over two years, three years in planning, okay? This physical location, and we've been doing remote medicine for four years, but this physical location is two years, coming on two years, not one paycheck. So I don't know what more I can do than do what I'm doing. So, I, I, you know, it's like I don't, you know, if we succeed and we're financially viable, that'll be great. Okay. I hope you do. I hope you find yeah. a way to make so, it financially viable. So, I mean, succeed. like, you know, it's not like, I mean, the bills are paid for. It's not like we're struggling. I mean, we're putting on conferences, which had to get closed down, you know, because of COVID. We're, we're able to do these things, but it's not like, you know, we're rolling in the meat industry funding here. It, it's not. It's my That's wife right. and you I. That's right. had a big um, New York conference you know, planned in June, so I guess you had to cancel all those plans, unfortunately. Yeah, we had to can- and look, we That's refunded every vendor, and we refunded every attendee, and it was a big loss to myself, Low Carb USA, and I, you know, the Fasting Method, who are all uh, partners in this. But we want to be responsible, and we want to do things correctly in the safe way. So it's not. I'm not saying this to like, you know, like we're in this because we believe in it. You know, yes, we do get paid from patients, but it's not like I'm not, you know, you know, there's no meat industry money here. You know, there's no, there's no massive, you know, my wife has got this small little tiny online business, you know, it's like we're a little practice here. We have maybe 500,000 patients. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I think people think a lot, you know, we have these grand thoughts of low carb conflicts of interest. There's no problem, you know, and, these are and them. You're, you're actually doing something and helping people in other ways because I know, like, I'll complain all day long about people dropping off donuts at the hospital for the nurses and the doctors as a thank you for working hard. I'll complain about that all day long, but I have to be honest with myself. I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not going to deliver them healthier food, but you did. You and your wife delivered low-carb treats to replace those donuts as a way to say, look, you know, we appreciate what you're doing, but please take care of yourself as well. It doesn't mean you can eat all this garbage and then harm yourself. We need you there. We need you in good health to provide this service. So, I mean, that that just shows that you're not just sitting on the sidelines complaining. You're you're taking an action, being proactive, and doing something about it, which I which I really appreciate. Yeah, my I mean, like, look, let's be honest. So, I'm I was very critical of the donuts, and my wife was like, "Put your money where your mouth is, Tro," and I did. We did. We we we. We donated, you know, the Greenwich Hospital system and the Yale network is very meaningful to us. And there's reasons why we supported them. Uh, I got my surgery there uh, very recently. I had neck surgery. And so, you know, it was our honor to be able to support them. Um, and they loved it. Everybody contacted us after where we loved it. It was like they didn't even, some people didn't even realize it was low, lower carbohydrate and lower glycemic. So, um, yeah, we, we, we put our money where our mouth is. You know, um, yeah, and it's a, that, I think that's for a recognizing for you. that. You know, thank you for recognizing that. You know, it yeah. means a lot. You know, to like we look, we yes, we yes, we are evangelists. Yes, 
we are not zealists. You know, we exam we are introspective. We consider, you know, side effects. We consider, you know, issues that that may uh, the limitations to our knowledge. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we put our money where our mouth is. We believe in this. Uh, among you know, yes, it would be nice to get our health coaches consistently paid, which we're doing. You know, yes, it's nice to get my front desk staff paid. You know, yes, it's nice to start, you know, now we're at a point where we can breathe, you know, financially. It's not like I'm struggling at all by any means. But, um, you know, it's like, look, we're, we took on a big personal risk and we're still living that risk. And it's because we believe in what we're doing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, I want to look at myself in the mirror, be happy with the person I see. I want to go to sleep at night knowing that I did my best. That's it. It's selfish. That's a great lesson. You know, selfish. It's selfish. Very yeah. selfish. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on this podcast. And I think we've learned a lot about you and your your beliefs and your practice. And I think a lot of people are going to walk away with some very clear nuggets out of this of what they can do to help themselves. Um, if they want to contact you, hear more about you, learn more about you, how would you direct them to do so? Best place uh, is is my website, drtro.com, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O.com. Or on social media, doctor, at Dr. Tro, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, we're on all of them. TikTok, I think we even have. So, um, And look, here's the thing. We have free resources. If you can't afford our program, you know, the podcast like you do, Brett, you know, we have a podcast with lots of information, the Low Carb MD podcast. We have these free town halls where, you know, they're not medical advice, but we're getting people, hundreds of people come and we just talk about our struggles and we have like these sermons. I mean, they're free for now. Hopefully we'll be able to keep it free for some more time. Um, but they're just ways to group together, get social support, community support, because that's, I think that's really important. So these are all places you can get in touch with us. And we have, you know, obviously we have intensive programs that uh, you can sign up for on my website, uh, medical programs in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Texas, where we can medically treat you. Um, and if you're anywhere else in the States, we have health coaches that can manage you, but you know, we're here and, and, uh, I mean, we're busy. We still have a little bit of a wait to get into our practice. Um, but, uh, we'll get you in if, if you reach out. Very good. All right. Well, thanks again and keep fighting the good fight for and helping your patients and, and keeping them central to everything you do. I really appreciate that. Thanks again.